uh, Romans chapter 8. We started Romans chapter 8 after a two-month break, and uh, last week I gave you a kind of a picture in your head to uh, raise the value of this chapter in our life. You know, if, if the redemptive story from cover to cover, uh, God's redemptive work for man, for sinners, is the scriptures, it's like the gold ring. The book of Romans is the diamond, and chapter 8 is now the sparkle of the diamond. It just helps you understand the value of it. It just keeps uh, going up, in, uh, I think, in God's estimation for us. If you look at the book of Romans, uh, in chapter 8 specifically, you see that it begins with the most amazing statement ever, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the time we get to the end of chapter 8, we'll see that there is now no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and in the middle is no defeat for those who are in Christ Jesus. It couldn't get better than that, Right? A few people thought it was really good there. Can't get better than that. Um, okay, there you go. Um, so we're picking apart Romans chapter 8. And, and in chapter 8, Paul is responding to something he said in the last verse of chapter 7. So just go backwards a little bit to 7, verse 25, and I'll show you the, the phrase that chapter 8 comes from. Um, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul is talking about two realities for every Christian. And that is that we have this part of us that God has authored and changed in us a new life, a new heart, a new reason, a new focus, the God loves me, the God loves me part and the part that loves him in return. And then there's this body of flesh, this part that seems to kick my butt from time to time and dictate the terms in ways I don't like. Uh, it is, as Paul describes it, the transformed inner man versus the outside man, the, the flesh. And so Paul deals in chapter 7 with the, the extremes that exist there between the two, and he says it in phrases that I really identify with. He says, I, I have the desire to do what is good, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. Anybody in here say amen to that phrase? Yeah, that's, that's the Christian life. God, I want you. I really want you. I want to do what you ask me to do. I, it should be easy to, to love or, or maybe at least how I see it defined in Scripture, but I, it's really, really hard. Forgiveness? Are you kidding me? I see how Jesus forgives us and I'm supposed to have this resource of forgiveness, but I hold so many bitter grudges against people. I don't seem like I can move on. Well, you're just, you just bumped into the spiritual reality for every believer. I want to do what's right. I don't have the ability to carry out. It's that struggle, that reality, and that's why Paul writes chapter 8, verse 1. I think it could be the greatest sentence ever structured in the English language. Clearly, he says, there is therefore now no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is an awesome statement. If after Paul gets done describing our condition, even after Christ, the war between the flesh and the spirit, here's what Paul wants to remind the church. Now, in the midst of all your struggle, church, you don't have to worry about God changing his mind. There is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus, even in the midst of you warring with the things you don't want to do. That's good news, amen? That's the best news I've ever heard. And, and he gives an amazing, unbelievable reason for it, verse 3 of chapter 8. One little phrase, for God has done. If you want an explanation why there can be possibly no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it's because God has done that. There, I was sitting this week uh, studying, and I'm going to confess something to you. I'm not the best study in the world. I, I consider myself a sprinter, not a marathon guy. 
So I race to thoughts and conclusions. I don't like to sit and stew them, you know? So it's really hard for me to grind. So this, this Thursday was eight or nine hours. I got here at four, and I was cranking through it. And I thought to myself, I got two pages into writing stuff down. I thought, I would prefer to preach last week's message again and again and again and again until you said uncle. <laughs> be, be, for one reason, the church does not get the grace of God. I've had conversations with you, and some of you hear this absurd, unbelievable, scandalous truth that God covers you so completely that your failures and your inabilities, and chapter 7 is true, and you don't like it. You wish that there was some kind of conclusion after 7 that said, oh, and by the way, Christians then will look real sharp, and they'll look like each other, and they'll do and don't do these things, and Paul doesn't say that. And so you look at your life based on all the work that you've put in, and you've got nothing to show for it because the only thing you stand under is God's grace, and it wears you out. It makes you frustrated. I'm trying to say this to you. Church, we've got to get God's grace. We've got to understand that there isn't anything you can do in the flesh. There isn't anything God looks at in your life and says, okay, you're pretty special. <laughs> he sees Jesus in you and over you. That's the only reason anybody stands. Amen. And so there's a part of me just in my cynicism would love to just keep pounding this message of grace alone by faith alone and Christ alone until everybody says, okay, okay, I get it. But I know that's also a spiritually discerned thing. The Holy Spirit has to do that work, not me. So we are going to move on. So everyone say amen to that. Yeah. Here's what we know. God has done what we could not do. Verse 3, he set us free. He condemned sin in the flesh. He came and died in our place and took the weight of sin, the punishment of sin, and he fulfilled the righteous requirements that God expected for sinners. Like God did this wonderful transaction, took my sin and gave me his righteousness. That's why there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And I gave you like four really unbelievable so what's to that. That, there, that means that there will never be rejected by the Father ever. No matter where you go, what you do, what you struggle with, how you fail, if you know Christ and he knows you, you will never be rejected by the Father. It means that the Father never is angry with you. He doesn't wake up to experience you tomorrow. He sees all of you in one shot and forgives it at the cross. He doesn't wait to see your sin tomorrow and says, oh, I'm so disappointed in you. He doesn't get angry with you. We also learned this, that he will never punish our sin, ever. Now, God disciplines us, but he doesn't, he's not punitive. Why? Because he poured out all of his righteous wrath, every drop of it, on Jesus, our Savior, right? And then the, the, the last truth we talked about is that if that's all true, then we are forever safe. You can't lose your salvation because your salvation wasn't anchored in you. It was a gift of God, so no man should boast, Ephesians 2, amen? So that's what we've learned. And it is true. It is so true. Paul continues now talking to the church about other things that are true. I think we've identified now in Paul's mind a problem. It's almost as if Paul uh, got in a time transport machine and came to America 2014 because it looks like he's looking at the church. Um, here's the problem. The problem is all those things you kept saying amen to. There are many, many people who think it applies to them and it doesn't. There are people sitting in pews, going to churches, serving in Sunday school, doing different things in small groups, giving their money. They know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. And so we're going to unplug that a little bit. Um, although the percentages have started to drop quite considerably, they still say, the people who take these surveys, that uh, three-quarters of Americans would call themselves Christians. They would use that uh, title to describe themselves. Well, clearly that's 
not true. Some 60 to 80 million people, as they calculate, are sitting in church pews today listening to something, you know. And I'm not suggesting that it's evangelical, orthodox, truth, faith, but at least that many people are sitting under the notion that there is a God and there's a problem. And that God is the solution to that problem. But you know as well as I do, coming to a church doesn't make you a Christian. In fact, someone once said that I think uh, church is the best place to hide from God. In our own heart, in our own demeanor, you can sit here and think that you're crossing, you know, the T and dotting the I and checking boxes, feeling good about yourself, but your heart's far from him. There isn't anything more terrifying in all the world to think you're there, to not be there at all. For me, it's a deeper darkness. To think that you're okay, to know that it's not changed. And so we want to talk about that today. There are many people who call themselves Christians who have no relationship with Christ whatsoever, no signs of life, no transformation, no desire for the things of God. And Paul makes an interesting distinction here in this passage between those who this truth that we just celebrated and said amen to, who it applies to and, and, and who it doesn't. Look, look at verse 4 and you'll see the two types of people. He says, Let's back up a little bit. Uh, By sending his own son, that's in the middle of verse 3, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, this is the distinction. Us who walk according to the, to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He's, he's deciding two categories here. There's a group of people who walk according to the body, to the flesh, and those who walk according to the spirit. Two kinds of walks. And I cannot tell you how important it is for you to understand the difference between the two and to take at least enough time to seriously look into your own spiritual mirror and decide which one are you. Absolutely essential. And I understand that some of you are going to be uncomfortable with this because you so desperately want to put this this discussion out of your mind to move on to other things. But there isn't a greater discussion in all the world. Not in all the world. To figure out if this stuff is really true, not just not logically true, but true as you believe it to be, owned by faith, trusted, and proved by transformation. So we want to talk about that. And the reason why I think it's important to spend a little bit of time on it is because we live in a very, very confusing time. People claim it with no evidence to prove it. In fact, if you go back years and years ago, um, theologians, pastors, uh, invented another category of believer. Now, now there's three categories of, of people in their mind. There is the unbeliever, easy to spot. These people don't claim Jesus. They don't care about their life. Th- they would just say it out loud. They don't know Christ and they don't believe it's true. The other uh, type of person is the person who's legitimately converted. This is a person who claims the, the, the name of Christ and sees the transformation of his life. This third one, this one invented by some people, is really confusing. It's this carnal Christian guy. Carnal just means fleshly, you know, living by the desires and appetites of the flesh. Um, In fact, it was in study Bibles. My dad had a study Bible that had this third category written and defended in it. I don't believe it's true. It's nowhere in the Bible. And let me, let me prove, just, just by a, a logical sequence of questions. Now, I'm going to describe this guy as he was described, and you tell me if it's possible. This is a person who can be touched, based on his confession, by the Spirit of God. This is a person who can say his eyes were opened, his heart was opened. He declares Jesus as Savior. Now, this is the kicker, but he never, ever sees change in his life, ever. 
No conviction of sin, no repentance, no obedience whatsoever, indifferent and apathetic. That's the depiction of this other classification of Christian, a man, a woman who can confess Christ but see no transformation in their life. And I'm going to suggest to you that Paul takes that option away from us. It's not biblical. Um, Do you remember the movie, What About Bob? Yeah, I love that movie. There's a scene when he's in the doctor's office, and he says this, there are two types of people in the world, those who love Neil Diamond and those who don't, right? I think think that's true, by the way. Um, No, that's, that's what Paul is basically doing here, his own essence of there's two types of people in the world, those who are known and loved by Jesus and love him in return, and those who don't. It's as simple as that. So what we're going to do today is look at the two. And listen, church, you're going to have to ask yourself where you fit. You have to look at your own life and look at what you confess and look at what comes out of you based on the work of God in you to see if this is true because the ultimate end would be how horrible to be deceived into thinking it's, it's there when it's not. Two types of people in this world, believer and unbeliever. Let's read this passage together. We're going to pray and, and ask for God's... Uh, wisdom here. We're going to read one through eight just to get a running start at it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God. Let's pray together. God, we understand your spirit is a teacher. And we understand that truth is opposed by um, our flesh and by Satan, and there's so many oppositions to it, maybe even whatever we're distracting ourselves with right now. God, my prayer right now is that we would look honestly at these two types of people, believer and unbeliever, And have the courage to ask the questions, which are we? God, we understand that you change people's lives. Maybe today you're working on that. Maybe there's somebody here who thinks they are and aren't. Maybe there's some people here who are certain that they aren't and have resisted it, but your Holy Spirit, like the hound of heaven, is coming. So I pray, God, that you would uh, open our eyes to the truth. We pray it in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Now... That complicated problem of people confessing Christ and not being real, I understand, to be fair, um, why it's a confusing issue at times. Because if I'm honest about how I read the Apostle Paul, sometimes he confuses me. I mean, sometimes he sounds like he's talking out of two sides of his mouth. I mean, to be fair. You you can read Romans 7 and thank God he wrote it, right? Because you see your picture in there. You look at Romans 7 and go, well, I can't do what I want to do, and the very thing I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. You go, whew, I feel better about my life. 
And it's a true statement, Christian struggle. But then he shows up like to Titus, this young pastor. You know, it's an instructional letter to a young man in, in ministry. And he writes this, God's grace has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And I look at him talking about his life, wrestling with his flesh and his spirit, and then I look about this, this instruction to Titus where he says, no, the Spirit of God has told you to say no to ungodliness, to control yourself, and to live a godly, upright life in this present evil age. And I go, mm. I'm a little confused. Like, which, which one of these is true? Uh, let me see if we can help figure this out a little bit. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to pick apart the first verse. Um, again, Paul wrote... 1 Corinthians, a church letter. So we're going to get a little bit of color on the inside of, of this reality. Um, let me give a little background on the church in Corinth. Corinth was a messed up place. It was Las Vegas, okay, on steroids. It was, I've never been to Vegas, but so I hear. Um, big city, big secrets, 12 temples, uh, a god to sex, a thousand prostitutes that you could worship with. I mean, it was out of control. And this church that Paul planted there had issues, a lot of issues. I mean, they had so many problems that you could, at points in times, look at the church and go, really? Could they be converted? Because they're dealing with things that you, you think are elementary. I mean, they were, there was all sorts of divisions in the church. They were warring against each other, taking their, course, their, their cases to court in front of a, a pagan judge, and Paul has to confront that. There's all sorts of bitterness and resentment going on in the church. They're abusing the Lord's Supper. There's some kind of sexual perversion that Paul says you can't even talk about going on in the church. There is false teaching going on in the church. Nevertheless, they're the church. And he writes this letter to point out a couple of these problems and how they should fix it, Okay. Here's what Paul says in verse 1. This is specifically dealing with the divisions that he's heard about happening in the church. But he says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as a people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Now, Paul refers to two thoughts here about these people that are important for us to understand. Number one, he calls them brothers. He says they're like-minded with him. They're part of the family of God. And then he calls them people of the flesh. That flesh word is the word carnal. It's the same word used in Romans chapter 8. Now, same word in the English, but a variation in the original language. Now, let me, let me describe to you the difference and why it's important. In Romans, Paul uses this word flesh as a noun. Here in 1 Corinthians, he uses it as an adjective, and I'll tell you why that's important. Because in Romans, he's telling the church or telling the people there who they are and what they are, their condition. He's saying in noun form, listen, you are of the flesh. That's who you are. Parameters around you. That's your condition. In, in 1 Corinthians, he deals with this people and how they behave, their actions. Like you're living like this. It's not who you are, but you're acting this way. Your maturity level, your behavior level is fleshly. It's carnal. In fact, 1 Corinthians uh, lines up perfectly with what Paul said in chapter 7 of, of Romans. 
But Paul is talking about the reality of a changed heart wrapped in this body of flesh that wars with the intentions of God in it, and sometimes it expresses itself, right? And so to the church in Corinth, he says, you're brothers, but you're seriously immature. Your actions are like the flesh. In Romans, he's saying, no, there are people who are in the flesh. They're stuck in a condition, apart from God, apart from Christ's condition. So... That's exactly how Paul helped us understand it in, in chapter 7. As long as we live in this body of the flesh, here's a solid truth. Christians will struggle with sin. R.C. Sproul said it this way. True Christians live a life characterized by a war between the Holy Spirit and the flesh. Amen? Sometimes the flesh seems to be winning more battles than the Spirit, especially when we are spiritual infants. This does not mean we are not saved. The presence of the desire for obedience and some good works prove otherwise. It does mean that as we grow into maturity, the victory over sin that Christ has won for us will be increasingly manifest in our lives through more and more victories of the Spirit over our flesh. So Paul has said a very simple thing. There are only two people, two types of people in the world, right? Christians who struggle and everybody else. That's the only types of people that Paul suggests exist on the planet. Truly converted people with new hearts and new goals and new affections wrapped in a body of flesh that wars with that body, that person, and everybody else who rejects God's gospel. That's it. That's as simple as it is, right? He goes on now in verses 5 through 8 to describe the characteristics of both of these people, these two types of people. So I want to just point out a couple of phrases, give some definitions before we talk about the characteristics. The the first phrase I want you to notice in in verse 5 is this phrase, those who live according to the flesh, that live according is a a verb, it's used to describe a lifestyle. These people live there. That's who they are. That's how they think. That's how they live out their life. There's a second phrase in verse 5 I want you to see, and he says this, Not only do they live according to the flesh, but they set their minds on the things of the flesh. The uh, phrase set your minds is really one word in the original language, and it's used to describe a fixed mindset, a devotion, right? It's, It's what you're devoted to. In other words, if we apply that truth to people who don't know Jesus, here's what it says. Unbelievers who live according to the flesh know no other way to live than to give themselves to their wants and their desires. They don't pull up, they don't pull out. They don't stop, they don't try. They don't turn, they just devote themselves to themselves and to sin. Do you see that? That's the, that's the mindset of a person who doesn't know Jesus. They're stuck in a position, and the position is away from God. Do you get it? Shake your head if you get it. Okay. Now, Paul goes on in verse 5 to talk about the two types of people, the believer, unbeliever, and the characteristics of the, of the two. Let's start with the unbeliever characteristics and uh, see what he has to say. The first thing that Paul deals with is how the unbeliever thinks, the thinking of the unbeliever. Look at verse 5 again. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. It's where their minds are, are focused. Now, there is uh, what I call the obvious side of this and the obscure side to this truth, having set their minds on it. The obvious one, you could fill in. So when an unbeliever sets his minds on the things of the flesh, what would you say? Sin, right? 
Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's what he sets his mind on. It's everything, all the gory stuff that everyone tries to keep secret. It's, the, it's all the addictions. It's all the anger. It's all the pride. It's all the stealing, all the selfishness, manipulations. It's the, it's the materialism. It's the sex. It's all of that stuff, every, every obvious sin that you would state. They set their minds on those things because they think there's a destination in pursuing them. There's either some kind of satisfaction or joy that's missing in their life. It makes sense, but that's what they do, right? There's an obscure side to what they set their minds on that, that I, call the, uh, I call the bad good stuff. And here's what I mean by that. This person who sets his minds on the things of the flesh can also be tricky to spot because some of these people choose morality as a way to fix their issues. So it's one guy over here saying, no, if it's all about me, I'm going to express me and be an idiot and I'll do what I want and hurt people, it doesn't matter. That gory sin guy is easy to spot. Nobody likes him, okay? This other person chooses to say, well, I'm stuck on me, but what I'm going to do is choose to, to the good pile theology. I'm going to be good or do these things or don't do these things. I'm going to make myself acceptable. I'm going to be better than other people, Right? He is religious. He's working hard to be better than others, to live a button-down life, thinking that his life earns him points with God. This person's covert. He sits in churches. This is the person who works really hard to conform the outside so that people will look at him and say, you're something special. And all he's doing is feeding the flesh. All he's doing is finding some sense of peace apart from Jesus, and his peace comes from being good enough. You understand? And I don't know a ton of these people, but they live. I've bumped into a few of them. They just really do live a really good life compared to others, compared to me. They have a list of things they do every day, and they've got discipline just wired, and they, they have avoided certain tasks, and they feel really, really good about themselves. So Paul deals with both those aspects, the gory sinner, the obvious, sets their minds on the things of the flesh, the way they think. And the person who thinks that their life merits some kind of attention from Jesus. And so it deals with both. In fact, if you want to be honest about this, Paul is an authority on the second one. In Philippians chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, but Paul giving credence for grace and credence for what God does apart from religious efforts of man. He describes his life apart from Jesus. Pretty impressive, to be honest with you. He says this, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. Circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now listen to this. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's looking at his life before Jesus got him and says, listen, if it was religiously possible, I could do it. If there was a way to climb to some favor or merit with God, I was doing everything you could do. He goes on to say it was all a waste of time. I count it all rubbish. I count it dung compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. But there's two sides to how an unbeliever thinks. Either one, it's all on me and my sin is obvious to see or He's trying to fix his own problem. Here's the second way Paul describes this unbeliever in verse 6. He describes their condition. For to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. Paul is not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about um, total unresponsiveness to God and the things of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, um, like a corpse. 
They have no ability to respond to any kind of stimuli around them. I'm going to make a confession to you. I, um, I don't like to fly. Well, wait, let, let me clarify. I don't like to fall. Flying's not a problem. <laughs> I have this sense, like, whenever a plane moves, like, uh, you, you do this too? I don't know if you do, but I grab stuff. Like, you could stop anything by grabbing it. Um, I had a, a friend of mine goes here, Pat Feenstra, who has a small plane in Alaska. He said, you want to come to Alaska with me? And I always dreamed about going to Alaska. But it was a small plane, two-seater, and the wind was blowing horrendously, all right? And every breeze that hit the plane, I'd grab. I would hold on. Like, I was freaking out that we were going to fall out of the sky. Now, I watched a, a TV show this weekend where they were showing men getting into these um, military planes, you know, these jets, and how excited they were. But they had these cameras fixed on their face, and then the pilot would start pulling all these, you know, 4G moves and things and upside down, and they would be, their faces would be contorted. They'd be hanging on for dear life, and eventually they'd pass out. And they looked so sweet and docile when they were out cold. They were unresponsive to anything the pilot did. He would spin it upside down. He would hang a big 4G. And they would just sit there, completely unresponsive to everything the pilot was doing. That is a picture of what it's like apart from Christ responding to the things of God. It's un- you're unresponsive to it. You can't move. You can't perceive it. It doesn't make any sense to us. For instance, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory and value of God. We saw in Romans chapter 1 that it's undeniable that there is a creator God by what has been made. And yet, this person's heart so desperately doesn't want to perceive a God in the story that they invent their own version of story, that it just happened, that there is no creator. And they do it for one reason. They don't want to be confronted by a creating God. They don't want to have to deal with his um, worship or his truth. And so they don't give him respect and they don't give him worship in spite of what they know to be true. That's what Romans says. It shows itself in this way too. Uh, you can show them this, the truth. They can't perceive it. I mean, their words on a page. In my text, it's written in English and I can show it to a friend of mine who doesn't know Jesus and I go, this is what it says. And they would just kind of gloss over like they're reading some kind of manual for something they don't know. In fact, Paul talks about it in, in, to the church in Corinth. He says, to those who are perishing, this truth is foolishness, and to those who are being saved is the power of God. There's such a contrast compared to how people perceive truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. He is incapable of getting it. I... Uh, I've lived in Arizona twice in my life, okay? I moved here in 98, um, and I've been here ever since. I lived here in 1984 for a year, and I lived in Tucson, and that explains why I left. Um, <laughs> totally kidding. Um, but I built swimming pools for a year, and, and the very first day in the job, um, the owner of the company put me with a man named Quinn. Uh, Quinn was a uh, brutal-looking man. Um, he was probably 10 or 15 years older than me and scarred all over, um, he had spent a lot of years of his life in a Mexican prison for running drugs. And uh, he had nothing. He lived out of a 62 Chevy pickup, slept in the back, and ate sardines. So it was rough. Um, every day we'd get in the truck, every day for a year. And every break, every lunch, every moment, we, I would talk about Jesus. He was not stupid. He was smart enough to hold his end of the conversation, but he could not get it. 
There wasn't any kind of way I could say it. There was no clever verse I could drop on him. There was no uh, insurmountable problem I created that forced him to trust in Jesus. He heard and heard and argued, and we dialogued for a year. And it just like hitting stone. And here's what I know. Unless the Spirit of God doesn't dive into your heart and transform your stubborn, rebellious, I hate God demeanor and change it into a love God heart, it's impossible to discern or believe. The condition of the unbelieving soul that Paul talks about here is the one that uh, has a dead condition. They just can't get it. Here's the other part uh, that we have to understand about this condition Paul, Paul talks about their religion. Now, I'm stealing that phrase from James Boyce because I think it's the best way to say it. And it might sound a little odd talking about an unbeliever's religion when we spend all this time saying he rejects God and wants nothing to do with God. But verse t- 7 tells us uh, just because they don't acknowledge the one and only God doesn't mean they aren't trying to create their own version of fixing their problem. That's the religion we're talking about. Look at verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Here's what Boyce says about this. Not long ago, I was reading an article in which the writer was speculating on the nature of things to come and in one place talked about religion. He used a phrase that struck me. He said that in future, we are likely to see a growth of a la carte religion, meaning that people will choose the items they like from a potpourri of religions and then combine them to make their own comfortable little religious systems. I like that description because it struck me as something I'd already observed. I had noticed that in our largely irrational age, it is a common thing for people to hold many mutually inconsistent ideas that only force holding, the only force holding them together being that their own individual attractions to them. But as I have thought about it, it seems to me that that's exactly what all religions are in one sense. They are collections of human thoughts held for no other reason than that they are comfortable. They are comfortable because they, what they do actually do is protect their adherence from the only true valid claims of the only living God. The unbeliever's heart, um, as Paul describes him, is uh, hostile to God and he will not submit. And because that's true, he runs off to build systems and values and ideals that attempt to evade God's authority and rule in his life. So he constructs these things and say, they're good enough. They're better than. They're tolerant for. They explain away sin. And so they build these systems and say, this works for me and everybody else because you can make your own adjustments. And all it does is deny the law of God. It can't submit to the law of God. And there's one motive for it. They're at war with God. That's what I was. There's nobody that's mutually exclusive to. Every one of us has been at war with God. And so Paul just describes it. That's how they get there. They're at war, and so they invent their way to avoid God. That's the religion of the unbeliever. He adds one more truth to this uh, perspective of the characteristics of an unbeliever. He describes their actions in verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, this person can't do anything but not please God. He is stuck on uh, God's displeasure. And of course they can't because they're at war with God. Isaiah 64 suggests this unbelievable truth that your righteous deeds and your best efforts don't merit God's attention. They're like what? Filthy rags. 
you and your ability, my and my ability on our own, apart from a righteous covering called Jesus, when God views what we do, he sees them as, as dung. They're not good enough. In fact, the actions of an unbeliever can never climb to the level of God's requirements. God says, listen, you got to be perfect, for I am perfect. And there isn't anybody I've ever met who can be perfect other than Jesus, right? And here's what we know about, I know this about my heart, and the Bible says it's true of every man's heart. We are so skewed, we don't even know our own motives for what we do. As a, as a totally unconverted, at war with God type person, I know what your motives are. Your motives are you. There's nothing else to think. I know this about a Christian heart. A Christian heart can even be twisted and not understand his own motives. He thinks he's serving God. Little did he know that he's insecure looking for somebody to pat him on the back. And that doesn't go anywhere either. Every person who's ever lived needs something called righteousness to cover them. God needs to perceive us and see us and love us through Jesus. Otherwise, there's no hope. If God looks at me at any point in time at my own efforts or motives, he finds me wanting. So the mind set on the things of the flesh, what Paul says here, is the description of unbelief. And Paul says it's, his thinking is sin, his condition is dead, his religion is himself, and his actions displease God. Now let's look at the contrast to the believer's heart. Again, I told you there's only two types of people, struggling Christians and everybody else. So this is the description of Christians now. Paul also describes the believer's thinking. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That phrase, set their minds on the things of the Spirit, uh, eliminates a lot of options for Christians. In fact, Paul is hemming in um, what the definition of a follower of Christ is. And by telling us that he thinks on the things of the Spirit, he eliminates all the bogus misconceptions that are perpetrated in the church about what it means to follow God. And let me just talk about a few of them because here's what I'm praying for. is what I prayed for this week is that somebody sitting in this room today would see themselves in this story and go, that's, that's what I'm doing. I thought I was saved, but that's who I am. So let's deal with a couple of these misconceptions. Paul eliminates the idea um, that religious people are Christians. Let me define religion so we all understand from the same perspective. Religion, by that I mean systems used to make ourselves acceptable to God. Where I go, what I do, what I don't do. Religion, by that I mean built on the idea that somehow, somewhere, if you get enough information, you can be good enough for God to be okay with you. That's religion. Or religion is this idea that gives credit for being sincere. As long as you mean well, God's going to cut you some slack. That's religion, okay? And, and Paul, if anybody, like I've already read to you, could perceive if there was a way to satisfy God on his own, would look at his own life and say it was a waste. It was, it was rubbish. In fact, what Paul determined was that I was pursuing what I thought were the things of God only to find out later that I was actually against him. I was killing Christians in the church. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So here's the reality of people who think the things of the Spirit, it eliminates religion. Religion is not an option for Christians. If you're sitting here today and you look at what, where you go and how often you go and kind of the things that you um, adhere to in, in that, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a believer. Here's another um, bogus claim that it eliminates. It eliminates the ideas that Christians are people who just believe the right things. 
Now, this is very, very subtle, so I want to make sure you listen very carefully to what I'm saying. A true believer in Christ has a confession, right? Right? It's not a trick question. Say yes. Okay. All right. Here's what we confess. Starts with the bad news. I'm a sinner incapable of fixing my problem, right? It also moves into the good news that Jesus perceived that, knew that, came on a rescue mission for sin, dove into time and space, took on flesh, died my death, satisfied God's righteous wrath. He grants me his righteousness. I go free. That's a confession, right? You guys seem uncertain. I told you we should have kept doing grace. You haven't gotten it yet. Here's what I want you to know. It's possible to believe those things. Have a mental assent to those things I just said and still be an unbeliever. Are you scared? Here's what I'm trying to say, folks. I've said it a thousand ways. Let me say it again. God doesn't save people. He doesn't transform. Here's what I want you to know. The the bulletproof, ironclad, real, um, identifying marks of a believer aren't necessarily that you can articulate a biblical gospel. It is that the gospel is articulated in your life. What I mean by that is this. You now love what Jesus loves. You hate what Jesus hates, and you pursue what Jesus wants you to pursue. Not in perfection. Nobody's perfect. We got Romans 7, right? But you can't go in your stubborn, hard-hearted, I've got these truths, and my life shows no change. That person doesn't exist. Think about the possibility that God could intervene in your heart and change that stubborn at war with heart and give you a heart that beats for him and it never acts like it's alive. Is that possible? It never once says, I hate what I'm doing. It never once says, God, I call it what you call it. It never once says, I love Jesus and I want to grow like Jesus. It never once chooses to forgive other people. It never, it never once chooses to give of itself or serve others ever, ever. I'm just saying that there's a possibility, it's so, it's so common, it's ridiculous that people can adhere to a series of absolute truths that are biblical and have not given their life to Jesus. It's worth the question, right? Paul eliminates one more, and I, I stole this from Boyce as well, but he eliminates the ideas that Christians can grow to a certain level of approved behavior. This is so classically Christian, I hate it, but it is a... It's a group of people who merit their life, measure their life based on a list. I don't fill in the blank. I do fill in the blank. You just got a list. These are things that you use to say, I'm okay with God. God doesn't use those things. God doesn't use your performance to measure whether you belong to him, right? The spirit of God authenticates that in you. The Christian is someone who is born again by the Holy Spirit, who has been transformed in his heart and his mind and his thinking and to be set on what God desires and what he wants. We might not have it all sorted out yet, but we want to. So church, let me ask you a simple question. Do you want to? When you're all done looking at your life, maybe your life is the train wreck of chapter 7. You can't do what you want to do. The very thing you don't want to do, you end up doing. Maybe that's you. Maybe you have more scars on your knees from praying, oh, God, forgive me, I did it again. Maybe you have all of that stuff. Let me just ask you a very simple question. Do you want him? Do you want to overcome the sin? Do you want to please God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you love him? Simple questions. Simple questions. That's what you have to wrestle with. Paul, Paul mentions one more characteristic of a believer. And he talks about their condition in verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is what? 
life in peace. Contrast and compare to life in, in the flesh. It's the opposite of an unbeliever's death. It's peace. It's life. In other words, um, God things make sense to us now. We have been awakened to sin at the deepest level. We've been awakened to worship. Um, We've been awakened to serve other people, and we've been awakened to Jesus and affection for him. We have peace. We don't walk around insecure in spite of our circumstances. We know we're deeply loved. We stop trying to earn our favor with God. As opposed to the hostility and war that exists between the unbeliever, we walk in peace, completely covered in love. Amen? I was thinking about a so what. I only got one. Maybe I'm not clever enough to give you more, but this is what we got. Which person are you? Do you know? Listen, church, the the most loving, gracious thing I can tell you to do is to ask that question because if the conclusion is you're not, run to Jesus. Don't, Don't rest in where you've been and how long you've been there. Don't rest in the fact that you're serving in a redemption community or you're in a small group somewhere. Don't rest in the fact you've got a big, fat Bible full of yellow, highlighted parts. Don't rest in those things. Rest in Jesus alone. Church, we've got an epidemic across the world of people who claim that don't know Christ. And in it, what I love about this text is it tells me I fit in here because I'm a perpetual knucklehead that sins consistently and I hate the things I do and I want to do more and I can't, and, but I want him. I want him and I hate my sin. So, church, let's finish this question. Which one are you? If you get all done with the story and you find yourself like me going, thank you, God, then, then worship should come out of our life, thanksgiving and joy and a settledness. If you're sitting here and you would answer the negative side, I'm not, then here's what I want you to know. Come. You know, I thought about, you know, we're kind of hokey. We don't do altar calls and we're not going to do one, so take a pass on that. Um, But I wish. I mean, I wish. In my mind, I wish that people who thought they were, who were trying to climb their way out of their pit, heard Christ for the first time, heard grace for the first time, and ran to receive it. Just, God, give it to me. You can have it now. And it's so absurdly simple that Jesus says, it's, it's kind of like a children's story. They can get it. Faith. Faith. Trusting in what God has said and provided, believing what he says about you, and accepting it. All the work is God's work. All the good work of transformation is God's work. All the good works that come out of your life aren't the way that God loves you. He loves you working through your life. Amen? So, would you ask yourself that question today? Don't be afraid of it. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the truth. I thank you for Christ. Do your work here with us today, I pray. Amen.